0: For the latest episode of As We Eat's Kitchen Technology Discovery Series, we're taking a close look at one of the most critical technologies developed to help humankind prepare and serve meals fit for everyone from kings and queens to newborn babies. But cookbooks, our topic today, not only provide instruction, they also educate, amuse, entertain, and enlighten their readers. Join us today for a fun look at the different roles cookbooks play in our libraries and kitchens as we talk about our favorites and what they
1: mean to us. Welcome to As We Eat, where we explore the intersection of food, family, history, and culture. We think there's something magical
0: that happens when people get together and share food. Conversations seem to happen a little more naturally. We talk about our commonalities and our differences. We share stories, memories, and recipes.
1: And we'll use food to take a journey that explores our human experience, share some fun facts and some that aren't so fun, talk about food history and how food connects and defines us.
0: So if you've ever eaten, prepared, or shared food, then this podcast probably has something for you.
1: Hi, Leigh. Hey, Kim. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. Where are you? Still in Montana. Right now we are in the valley. We've come off the mountain and uh, hanging out down here in the valley. There's a big, huge music festival, so tons of people around and absolutely gorgeous weather. Couldn't ask for anything more.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. We're finally warming up here in Washington State. I mean, we had a pretty cool spring and cool beginning to summer, but I was out on a golf course yesterday and I have the sunburn to prove it. So (laughs) (laughs) I've I didn't apply nearly as much sunscreen as I should have, but that's okay. It's, uh, you know, I'll have a nice warm glow for the rest of the summer.
1: You know what? I thought that I would start our episode out, as I usually do, because it is my jam, with a little bit of history about cookbooks, if that sounds good. Yeah, I would love, because it occurred to
0: me that I've always just taken them for granted. I've always had them in the house, They've always been accessible. I never thought about where they really came from and how they came to be part of our kitchen lives. What can you tell me?
1: Well, I think I'll start out with the oldest surviving collection of recipes, which is called the Yale Culinary Tablets. And these are three clay tablets from Mesopotamia dating... Around 1700 B.C., very old. Yeah. And the tablets actually include lists of recipes as well as how to prepare the dishes. One of the tablets includes 25 recipes for stews and broths. One of the stew recipes included is called a sick beige, and I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. Dan Girafsky explains in his book, The Language of Food, A Linguist Reads the Menu, as It must have been amazingly delicious because it was a favorite of kings and concubines for at least 300 years and celebrated in story after story. The tablets also provide us with a sense that the presentation of the food was as important as the methods in which they were made. They describe these complex molds and utensils that were used to display the food creatively. The recipes included were likely made for Mesopotamian royalty and not the regular Meso population, which seems to be the case in more recent surviving historical cookbooks, The oldest surviving cookbook that could be classified as a cookbook by our modern standards, meaning it has paper pages, is by Apicius, the famous first century epicure, who is described as the most gluttonous gorger of all spendthrifts, who established the view that the flamingo's tongue has especially fine flavor. Yum. Wow. Yeah. So in his book, De Coconaria, or On the Subject of Cooking, it's actually 10 books that are divided into categories that we would be familiar with as chapters in our modern cookbooks, like meats, vegetables, legumes, flamingos. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> but in all, there are 500 recipes focused mainly on dinner or supper that were served in Roman households, again, likely the elite and royal. As a matter of fact, the 9th century editions of this cookbook are used in the Vatican in Rome. Wow. Moving on to the 8th and 9th century, we find Kitab al-Tavi, a cookbook that historians believe was written for Prince Sayyaf al-Dallah for the purpose of refining the culture in his court. This is the oldest known Arab cookbook and includes cuisines from the Arabian Peninsula to Persia. So, porridge is sweetened with dates to stews associated with Iraqi cuisine. Now, much like the previous three books that I've listed... The book of St. Savi, written in the 1300s, gives us an extraordinary glimpse into the culture of the time it was written and published, in this case, the medieval culture. And I would go so far as to say it may even be a precursor to what we know now as community cookbooks. It appears that this book, like many medieval cookbooks, was compiled from several different manuscripts and even included input from some of the readers. This next cookbook moves from strictly food and preparations to how food affects us. I'm not even going to try and pronounce it, but it means essential knowledge for drinking and feasting. And it combines the Hippocratic and Chinese medicine traditions with Near Eastern cuisine. So essentially Mongolian cuisine. And again, it was a cookbook designed for royalty. The author was responsible for not only creating food that was delicious and exotic, but also healthy for the royals. Now the first time that we see a cookbook written in English is in 1390 and it is in the form of form of curry. Now it's important to note that curry c u r y in Middle English means cookery and not the curry dish that we probably associated with that as soon as I said it. This book is thought to have been written by the chefs of King Richard II. And while it states that the recipes are intended to teach a cook to make everyday dishes, the inclusion of ingredients like caraway, nutmeg, cardamom, ginger, and pepper, all very expensive spices at the time, as well as whale, crane, curlew, heron, seal and porpoise lead me to the assumption that this again was a cookbook not for the masses but for the elite and royal what no flamingo no flamingo in this one sorry porpoises though (laughs) so as i mentioned cookbooks were originally only fit for kings they were truly symbols of social status But with technology came larger audiences. We saw the introduction of the printing press in the mid 1500s, which made it viable to build audiences beyond the rich and famous. What followed were cookbooks that were marketed to these once marginalized populations. The titles of the cookbooks were explicit in their targeting of these less well off readers. As in the example of Plain Cookery for the Working Classes or The Art of Cookery Made Plain and Easy. Regardless of the titles, though, we were now seeing classes other than the elite and royal being represented in cookbooks. In the 1700s, we start to see housewives as a group being marketed to. Now, these aren't your thrifty housewives looking for time and financial hacks. These are gentlewomen responsible for large estates, which included the oversight of servants, directing, cooking, brewing, baking, butter and cheese making, managing medicines for the household, and the dyeing of textiles. A great example of this is The English Housewife by Gervaise Markham. Now, I want you to note that Gervais Markham is male. By the 1800s, with the emergence of middle class, who wanted nothing more than to imitate the lifestyle of the rich and famous... Publishers saw that it was a woman's insight into running a household with fewer servants that would make the cookbooks more appealing. So we start to see female authors rework some of the earlier cookbooks to include simplification of dishes, substitution of less expensive ingredients, and at the same time providing a lot more detail into the methods of preparation specifically suited to their means. Now, with literacy rates skyrocketing in the 19th century, especially in Northern and Western Europe and the United States, as well as higher income levels, more opportunities were created for the cookbook industry. Titles now start to include phrases like, for all households, for everybody, for all classes. These subtitles may have seemed to be more inclusive, but it still really boiled down to the price of the publication and the types of ingredients that were used in the dishes that dictated the strata for which these were created. By the 20th century, group identification was largely dropped from titles, and even recipe names that indicated status were modified. Henry Notaker gives a great example of this in an article written for The Atlantic. Quote, in an 1897 Norwegian cookbook, one dish was called poor man's roast goose. Since goose was an expensive food, the recipe suggested using the more cheaply available liver larded and prepared as roast goose. In the 1911 edition of the book, however, the dish was simply called liver roasted as fowl. That's fascinating. With an abundance of food, the second half of the 20th century saw an explosion in cookbook publications. Names like Irma Bombeck, Betty Crocker, and Julia Child begin to provide personalities and identities that empathize with the cook, who bring a human component to cooking and cookbooks. Gosh, that's
0: fascinating. You know, you're bringing up some really important points and stuff that I'm going to want us to continue to touch on as we have this conversation. The idea of cookbooks as marketing of a lifestyle, especially. So I want to take us back for a minute to remember episode 36. We had that Feminism at the Kitchen Counter episode where we were digesting, some pun intended there, the fabulous essays from Betty Crocker to Feminist Food Studies, Critical Perspectives on Women and Food. And that was edited by Arlene Vosky-Avakian and Barbara Haber. And there was a section on reading Recipes and cookbooks as creative expressions that spark some really great conversation about how cookbooks transcend instruction and instead serve or additionally serve as culinary memoir, autobiography, or ethnographic view, of personal experiences within different foodways from that book overall, there was an essay by historian Nancy Herman Jenkins that really resonated with me. And it caused me to start to examine the content of my own cookbook library to look at it as, well, who does this collection belong to? And what does it actually say about me? Now, she writes, quote, cookbooks can tell us much about the food of past times, but the views they present of historic kitchens and of women's roles therein are necessarily limited. Cookbooks are prescriptive rather than descriptive, describing not so much what people actually ate, what women actually cooked, as what the authors hoped they would eat and cook, end quote. After reading that passage by Nancy Jenkins, it really made me think that there is another part and party to that conversation. Of course, we're talking about the people who are writing and publishing cookbooks on one side of a coin. But the other side is that there are those of us who collect, read, and cook from those books. And what it is that we're trying to accomplish when we, you know, are participating in reading a cookbook. I imagine I cannot possibly be alone in this because I collect cookbooks that are not only relevant to the types of food and cuisines that I particularly like, you know, I'm always looking for that good weeknight, easy family recipe that will appeal to not only myself and to my husband and anyone else I'm feeding. But there's also those books I collect that are beyond the boundaries of my personal preferences. They might be foods that I want to try or cuisines with which I'm unfamiliar and I'm trying to gain a grounding in the context. I can read those for fun, almost like a literary fiction experience, or Mm. of course, they can just be flat out instruction as well. What I mean is that I have cookbooks that are treasured, reliable standbys, as well as cookbooks from which I have never actually cooked a single recipe Sometimes because ingredients are really challenging to source or the techniques are really unfamiliar to me and I'm not feeling very brave about trying it out, wasting an expensive ingredient on something that turns out tasting like flamingo tongue. But ultimately, <laughs> a lot of these books support a vision of myself as the cook that I long to be and that eater that I long to be with the assumption that eating that way will make me be this person that I want to be. Does that
1: make sense? Totally. It totally makes sense. I don't think you're alone in that. I think that we all have these aspirations, and I think that cookbooks do that for us. So,
0: for example, I inherited a 1965 edition of Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and I will admit that I've never actually cooked from this book because I am more than a little intimidated by its scale and its prestige. This is like the book, right? This is the Julia Child, Simone Beck collaboration. But I love looking through it because some of the pages are dog-eared. There's food splashed on them by a previous cook. And it's fun to try to trace what recipes were especially popular because there's evidence of use of the cookbook. So things like hamburgers with cream sauce, artichokes braised with wine, garlic, and herbs, and chocolate souffle, definitely those pages showed the most signs of wear and tear from its previous owner. And I like to imagine if whether those dishes make up one comprehensive meal, or whether they just were tried and true sections of the book that this person came back to time and again. To me, it's sort of this mystery to this cookbook that is above and beyond its basic intention, which was to bring French cooking outside of France to the rest of the population. I have a treasured copy, and I've talked about this before, California Cooking by Mabel and Gar Hoffman. And I bought this one at a school scholastic book fair in 1984. It still has the stamp from the school in the back of the book that proves that it was purchased. And I have cooked recipes from this book. This particular selection is a 100% example of a cookbook that I purchased because I believed or hoped that by cooking food in a California style, because the whole collection is based on this idea of using California produce and being able to experience a little bit of California no matter where you were, that somehow I would in turn develop and grow into the kind of person who embodied that California spirit. I would describe that person as sun-kissed, always on the go, affluent, cultured, no problem picking up an avocado and making something besides avocado toast out of it. This was how I envisioned growing up in Los Angeles in the 80s. This is what I thought a Californian would be like. But as I look through it all these years later, its pages are stained from my efforts as a 10-year-old to make classic Caesar salad um, and lemon tree chicken. And a testament to how your perception and your tastes and food changes over time there are recipes, this book, that still look amazing to me, like kumquat chicken, Cornish hen with kumquats, but ones that are also incredibly dated and passé, like tuna mousse or picnic ham loaf. The idea of tuna <laughs> mousse is just, no, that's it, cat food, basically. I, would, <laughs> I, think it's, I think of it as cat food. So those two books really embody all this hope and dream that I have of the person I would be if I cooked that way. And if I ate that way, mm-hmm. and that's to me what resonates with the idea of the royalty cookbooks is because, as I said, it's for those of us who aspire to eat like royalty and who in turn then might feel like royalty. And then on contrast, I have two other books that are, have really lasted the test of time. One of them is The Complete Indian Cookbook by Michael Pendea. This is another one I know I've talked about before which was the main guide from which my dad and I cooked curry dishes. And from this book, I learned how to make curry blends and spice pastes that serve as the backbones for curries, as well as I learned a bunch of British food names that I didn't know before. Aubergine, rocket, coriander, or what we know as eggplant, arugula, and cilantro. What I also love about this book is that the ingredient list for each recipe is written in both metric and imperial and American measurements, which I think I've actually never encountered another book like that is intended for multiple audiences. Funny note, though, that although the author includes examples of which dishes from the book would compose a nice vegetarian or non-vegetarian menu, we never used them. We always made up our own menus using our favorite dishes But drawn from a wide array of regional cooking styles. And so basically eating dinner, curry dinner at our our house would have been probably akin to um, being served a starter of New England clam chowder, followed by Texas barbecue, and then baked Alaska. All delicious, but definitely a little bit discordant in terms of the areas that these dishes originated from. I managed to finally claim my nostalgic family favorite, Betty Crocker's cookbook, and this is from 1974. And to me, this particular book is more than the sum of its parts because the book was heavily used by both my mom and myself, and it's jammed with additional recipes torn out of magazines from newspapers. My mom's written conversions for time and temperature in the margins. So, like, I have her handwriting throughout the book from Mm. when she was adapting recipes. And, of course, the whole cookie section is stained with butter and vanilla from my many seasons of holiday cookie baking. This book also really reflects the notion of homemaking from the 1970s. There's a section titled Preserves, Relishes, Garnishes, and Sauces that, when I bought an updated copy in 2000, was renamed Sauces, Seasonings, and Accompaniments, because cooks weren't cooking the same way. The recipes are also different in each section. The meat section from 1974 had recipes for like Steak Diane, dishes that would have been very popular at the time. How does your library speak to you, and what do you think it says about you?
1: I think that my library really speaks to the nostalgia of food. Most of my cookbooks are vintage cookbooks. I do love a modern cookbook. I love the imagery, but I think that the nostalgia of recipes really is what inspires me.
0: Yeah, when I read, especially when I read a recipe that I know came from my grandmother or my grandfather or even ones from my mom or my dad, I do feel that moment of connection between us all. There is that thread that exists between anybody who cooks from the same book as somebody else where you have that sort of sense of belonging. And that's why... I think cookbooks have been such big parts of community building. We talked about it with the suffragettes. We talked right. about it with the African-American community. You start to feel these threads come together about what a community is based on how they eat, as well as here's a way of cooking and eating that can help you be either a different person or more of the person that you already are. I think we all still use recipes and cookbooks that affirm our diets, but at the same time, I definitely have books in my collection that are foods that I intend to eat, um, that I'm Aspiring to eat a certain way. And of course, this California cooking book, Tuna Mousse Aside, it still speaks to me (laughs) all these years later. I still want to cook and eat like this. I still want that sunny barbecue afternoon where I'm flipping veggies and teriyaki pinwheel chicken skewers. And I'm trying to remember what else is in this book that has always fascinated me. Fruit tarts. So as we wrap up, you know, it's pretty obvious to me that we're going to need to keep talking about cookbooks because we have barely cracked the cover on this topic. Again, some pun intended there. And so I I think that's something we're definitely going to have to look forward to in our next season of As We Eat. But as we conclude this episode today, I want to talk for a minute about the changing face of cookbook literature. And of course, we know that the internet disrupted the major tenets of publishing, and this is across the board, but the social media and blog revolution of the early 2000s created both the technology and the accompanying cultural moment where creators found space to share all manners of thoughts, experiences, and the artifacts of their lives, including a record of what they ate and what they wanted to eat. Food magazines and companies took advantage of this new technology to produce published food writing and content, complete with gorgeous, lush food imagery, to attract New audiences, and ultimately, we figured out how to monetize curiosity and the basic desire to find a way to make great tasting food. So, in this space, some have argued that cookbooks, as we traditionally view them, is a dying art, as in why buy a cookbook when you can just find a recipe online? And while they're not wrong, I would like to actually argue that we're simply in a new era of food culture where food writing and instruction is finding its new forms and methods of expression. One of my newer additions to my cookbook collection is a really curious title called Japanese Cooking with Manga. This is by the Gourmand Gohan team. The entire book is this neat hybrid of a traditional cookbook with recipes that have head notes, an ingredient list, and technique, But it's paired with a graphic novel style where the technique is illustrated graphically. So you literally can watch how this recipe is meant to come together in a very graphic way. So, of course, there are more innovations coming to how we share recipes videos on YouTube or TikTok are shaping how people are encountering new dishes. It's been fascinating to watch that evolution come forward. And while I'm personally not able to fully imagine what a video cookbook might look like, I know it's coming. But I guess my bottom line is let's not be afraid that the cookbook is a dying art. (laughs) I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, look how far we've come from the cookbooks of the 14th century or even much further back to where we are now. They're both wildly different. And yet, but at the end of the day, they all still do the same thing, help bring awareness to dishes that we might like to eat. It's good stuff.
1: Exactly. I totally agree. I think that you're right. I think that the internet probably will be something more of an addition to the way that we share recipes and not necessarily replace yeah. a printed cookbook. I really don't. I really hope not. Anyway. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm hard pressed to imagine a world without the book. And One thing that we learned in library school was that there was a 2000 year overlap between the papyrus, which was the primary force with which people were recording data, and the codex, the paper book that we know today. So with an overlap like that, and even if the Internet cuts that time in half or even quarters. We're still looking at centuries. So I don't think any of us have to be too worried that our cookbooks are going to become a thing of the past, but they are evolving and changing. And I actually think some of the innovations are pretty cool. I love, while illustrations to cookery are not new, I do think that they're a beautiful, fun way of doing it that seems to contain a lot more information than a photo.
1: For sure. We mentioned a couple of episodes while we were talking about cookbooks. The first one was episode 36, which is Feminism at the Kitchen Counter from Betty Crocker to Julia Child. We talk about some cookbooks and some cooking articles that I think that you'll really enjoy. The second one is episode 37 from the Kitchen Counter to the Voting Booth. And this one is specifically about suffrage for women and community cookbooks and fascinating as well. So we invite you to listen to both of those. And, you know, we're now moving into the part of the year where we're able to harvest what we've planted in our gardens in the spring. Berries and fruits are abundant in farmers markets and at the groceries. And in honor of this, we're taking on another listener request in the next episode. Ramona Gibson asked us to answer the question, what's the difference between jams, jellies and marmalades? And in usual As We Eat fashion, we'll dish some history, lore, and musings on the topic. So make sure that you stop by in two weeks and take a journey into the sweet preservation of fruits and berries. Love it!
0: (laughs) For more information about today's episode, check out our website at asweeat.com. Follow us on Instagram at asweeat, and please join our family recipes, traditions, and food lore community on Facebook.
1: And so you don't miss an episode, subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And it would make us super, super happy if you would share this episode with a friend and review and rate it on Apple Podcast or Podchaser. And I understand that Spotify now has added a review function as well. And five stars would be fabulous.
0: Please and thank you. We also publish the As We Eat Journal on Substack. We would be so honored if you would support us by becoming a subscriber. We take tasty side trips through vintage recipes, community cookbooks, discovery, explorations, and our favorite travel stops. There are three subscription tiers, including one especially for brands. And we're sure you're going to find one that's perfect for you at asweeat.substack.com.
1: You've been listening to the As We Eat podcast, part of our multi-platform storytelling project exploring how food connects, defines, and inspires.
0: Ba-da-ba-da, ba ba